0: My next guest here is an extraordinary guest and an extraordinary opportunity for all of you because the field of exorcism and the work of exorcists is very, very much misunderstood. Well, why would that be, Mike? Yeah, why would that be? Well, because Hollywood. Ironically, though, I bet Mr. Clement probably knows this. Ironically, though, if you read William Peter Blatty's book, The Exorcist, Blatty struggled with his Catholicism his whole life. Uh, It's not known what state he was in when he died. But Blatty was very candid in telling anyone who would listen, I did not write a book about demons and about possessions. I wrote a book about the demons attacking the family and breaking it up. Because the theme of The Exorcist, the book, is all about divorce. So it's ironic that The Exorcist starts most of this, or uh, a, a, a large portion of it, and The Exorcist, the book, actually gets it, most of it correct. Um, so we start there. So let me go to the Dude Maker hotline here and say hello to our spe- very special guest today Mr. Kyle Clement. Let me give you his official uh, his official titles. Mr. Kyle Clement who is the case facilitator administrator for the Societas Matris Dolorosissima. I hope I pronounced that correctly. This society founded by Father Chad Ripperger is an order of semi semi-contemplative exorcist priest and lay assistants who provide formation and consulting services in the areas of exorcism and extraordinary diabolical activity. And he's on our Dude Maker hotline here with us. Uh, Mr. Clement, good morning to you, and thank you so much for taking time out of your day to visit with us.
1: Good morning, Mr. Church. I'm happy to be with you this morning.
0: You know, I, uh, I didn't know what to expect when, uh, when I went on Monday and I got the chance to meet you and introduce myself as your, uh, as your audio guy, but I quickly, became, <laughs> I quickly became aware of your level of expertise and your knowledge and grasp of the subject. Uh, uh, I'd probably embarrass you by saying, wow, it's almost like I was listening to Father Rippert's <laughs> at some points in time. Uh, but how did you get started in all this? If you could just give us a little bio information.
1: So um, never, never look at a priest and say, Father, whatever I can do to help you. <laughs> uh, That's what you did? I made that mistake a little over 20 years ago. And uh, a <laughs> um, very good priest who was an exorcist, I had no idea. And um, as a fruit of prayer and some interior movement in me, he was a confessor, spiritual director, And uh, he began to see some things and and, uh, asked to to share some insights. I am not a mystic by any means, um, but what I was seeing was patterns of behavior. Um, I grew up with a herder's heritage. I'm a seventh-generation cattle and sheep rancher. Um, And so I was always fascinated with the concept of predation, how a predator worked not only on individuals but on herds, what made particular flocks or herds. Um, vulnerable, the topography, how the predator worked both singly and in groups. And so I, I spent quite a bit of time um, pursuing this knowledge, and both practically and, and theoretically. And I began to, to notice the overlay in the way what I thought was the diabolical was working um, on humans. And so he was somewhat fascinated by that and asked if I would assist him, and I didn't even know what that meant. Well, it turned out he was an exorcist, and so it took off from there.
0: And uh, just based on what I heard you talking about, it sounded to me like you have actually encountered many, many demons.
1: Um, That is just part and parcel of the work. Um, Father Ripperger is in solemn session, over 250 to 300 hours per year. Um, I have directly assisted not only Father Rippiger but many other exorcists whom we have trained, um, a part of my duty for several years was to go with them, uh, to go and be with them in their first solemn session and, and just kind of, uh, talk them through it kind of like a flight instructor. And so, um, I did, I've done that for several years.
0: Okay, I want to start where you started with the uh, the mission on uh, Monday. And I think this is a really good place for most people to start on this. Um, and as I mentioned, The Exorcist, the book by William Peter Blatty, you know, he was writing that be- because divorce, he lived in California. And divorce had just been signed into law as something uh, to, to, uh, that was made. No fault divorce was made illegal. Ironically, Ronald Wilson Reagan signed that. And the uh, uh, Blatty wrote that book in response to what he saw was the disintegration of the family. And of course, he had a, a very, he had a front row seat to it because his own uh, went through this. Uh, but he was trying to make the point that family disintegration is part is the work of the devil. I don't mean to, to say that flippantly or or, or, or just to, to, make, to make it into a cliche, but, you know, your first talk was the domestic church under attack, the diabolical attack on marriage and family. Um, this is a real thing, and I imagine that Father Rippertur and the other men that you mentioned have encountered this tens upon tens of thousands of times. Can you tell our audience how the demons, how do they approach this? What do you, is there? Is there a pattern that you see in these attacks? Uh, there are many, many patterns and many
1: constants. We tell people the diabolical is the most tightly controlled creature uh, in all the universe. He's confined not only by his fallen nature, he can't act outside of that, but uh, he's also controlled by providence. But you bring up a very interesting uh, point that many, many people miss is quite often diabolical manifestation in children is a result of sins of the parents, and let me go directly to that, because the diabolical sees marriage as a one-flesh union. The diabolical has the purview or the, the uh, right, if you will, to sift us like wheat, to be present, to physically afflict us, If we are outside the protection of sacrament, right relationship with God, right relationship with vocation. Um, And so one definitely crosses this boundary with infidelity, anything that fractures or militates against the integrity of vocation. And he sees children and rightly so, he sees children as a product of the one flesh union. They are flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone, and they are the most vulnerable and weakest among us, and it is there that he attacks.
0: You say, you mentioned vocation three times, they counted. I assume that you mean the vocation of husband and the vocation of wife.
1: Precisely, and so there are two two accepted vocations which serve as a conduit of sacramental. Uh, grace of the sacrament, and those two are religious orders and the married state, provided that the married state is the sacrament of matrimony and meets all the requirements to, to be a sacrament of matrimony, and as such, it then becomes a conduit of the grace of the sacraments um, into um, society. And the primary font or conduit of that grace is uh, sacramental marriage, or the the sacrament of matrimony. This is why it's such a focal point for attack.
0: So, what you're what you're saying, then, and I'm speaking with Mister Kyle Clement here on their uh, Dude Maker Hotline here. What you're saying here, if I understand correctly, um, for you for young people, if you want to avoid uh, bogeys. Um, uh, A a well-ordered, vocational, sacramental marriage is a way to do that.
1: Yeah, that's high and defensible ground in the spiritual realm. Um, It's it's a very uh, fortified position from which one may live their life and attain holiness.
0: You know, most people may take that for granted. And most say, "Wow, so what are you saying? A good marriage will keep the demons away." Well, a good—it sounds to me like a a good sacramental marriage will keep them away. Have you ever encountered someone or a a, a family, uh, Mister Clement, that uh, that was good and sacramental and was trying to, uh, and they were practicing their vocations, and yet the bogeys, the demons, got through anyway.
1: Um. You- periodically you run into these but it's going to be something that's there generationally it'll be a generational curse there'll be some latent situation that needs to be addressed and and again the the uh <clears throat> The diabolical serves as a methodology for us to see where we're vulnerable, see the low spot in our wall, and ultimately correct it so if it's a generational curse or if it's some kind of generational anomaly family member that's that's practicing the occult or something that is outside the bounds um, then the, through the activity of the diabolical this is this is made known and it's it's able to be addressed. Um, the one thing that is a universal principle is if one turns to God, amends their life and follows the formula of returning to the faith and living the faith uh, the demon is vanquished they are they are creature, they are not creator and they're not
0: uh, all powerful. This is so fascinating so interesting um, all right, I want to follow up on the generational curse because I heard you talk about this on Wednesday and I sat there with just rapt attention going like I had never heard this before you got a question from one of the audience members about a grandfather that had bequeathed to them a gold Masonic ring. What did you tell that person to do with the ring and why?
1: So the instruction was to destroy the form, um, to, to basically destroy its insignia, its form, and then to dispose of it, in, in preferably in deep water. Uh, bless it and then dispose of it. Um, Your scriptural precedent is the golden calf. Um, Objects, inanimate objects, serve as anchor points, or uh, attachment points for the diabolical focal points, if you will. This is an inversion or a counterfeit of holy metals, of of, um, objects of devotion, sacramentals, if you will, In the Catholic faith, and so everything on the other side becomes a counterfeit or an aping, to to quote Archbishop Sheen, an aping of that which is good, that which is holy, that which is of the faith, and so these inanimate objects serve as an amulet, a fetish, an anchor point, if you will, and uh, for the diabolical. I have heard.
0: Okay, Mm I was I was going to say I have heard them called contact objects. Yeah, there is some
1: of the literature that calls it a contact object. It's a, it acts as a beacon or a focal point, a homing device, if you will.
0: Now, let me ask a follow up question about the contact object and about the generational curse. Let's say my grand, my grand, my great grandfather was a thirty third degree Mason, and I just found out about it. I heard you speak on this subject that uh, that this this may actually be passed down. This evil may actually be passed down to me. Is that is that correct?
1: It's a possibility. So a couple of qualifying statements. Number one is the stance against Freemasonry being an excommunicable activity goes back to 1717, and there are no less than 36 papal bulls, motoproprios and encyclicals which address this in an unbroken stance. And the idea that this has changed was last addressed in 2004. So no, Freemasonry is not permissible. Um, uh, any secret society, um, is not permissible for a Catholic to be in, especially Freemasonry, which was set up directly against the Church. So th- what I'm saying is not something new, arcane, or draconian. It's it's still in effect. Um, <clears throat> so our scriptural precedent for curses being generational is our Lord speaks in, in uh, Deuteronomy, and says, for those who curse me, I will curse them to the third and fourth generation. For those who bless me, I will bless them to the thousandth generation. And what he's saying there is those who curse me, those who militate directly against God and his constructs, um, such as Freemasonry and the integrity of the church, then there is a curse Based upon the vows that people make as they advance through the various degrees of Freemasonry, including and not limited to desecration of an image of the Pope, desecration of the the Eucharist, etc., as they militate through those various degrees, they allow the diabolical to, to be present to their descendants to the third and fourth generation. The simple fact that that someone's ancestor was in Freemasonry does not necessarily mean that the curse is going to be visited on you. So unless you have an indicator that something is happening that is beyond the norm, that is extraordinary, um, then I wouldn't be concerned about it. If, however, there are physical maladies and, and other things undiagnosable that are happening to someone in the family... Who is trying to give their life to God, who is approaching a sacrament, who is trying to enter seminary or enter a, um, a Catholic marriage. And then this comes, this, this is consistent with the way the curse works. But the demon is present to the bloodline, he's not present to a specific individual. So they interact with humanity different, differently than we see ourselves.
0: This, is a, this gets quite scary as well because if you uh, if you plumb the depths of this, you also uh, uh, answered a question about someone, about them suffering chronic pain. And uh, uh, they were asking you, could this be that a demon is, uh, uh, I, I believe this term would be obsessing me. And the answer that you gave was, was and you said, well, do this and you'll know immediately. What... If someone is experiencing pain out of the ordinary, just out of the blue, as they say, and suspects that maybe there may be some diabolical activity, how can they find out, and what should they do about it?
1: Okay, so here's the litmus test. It's a very simple prayer. There are a lot of these little litmus tests and things you can use in the field. If you perceive you're involved in hand-to-hook combat with the diabolical, a fallen creature, fallen angelic creature, they will respond to prayer. Now, when I say respond to prayer, it may not get better, it may get worse, but there will be a marked response, and so the prayer is very simple. You feel a pain, whatever it may be, um, that seems unnatural. Now, um, all of us, as we age, um, I'm experiencing things that uh, are a product of aging. That so are not am I. Extraordinary. <laughs> so uh, the prayer is very simple. It is... Uh, Lord, if this is of you, uh, then I give you thanks and praise, and I join this physical discomfort to the agony of the Christ in the passion. If it is not of you, I ask that it be returned from whence it came as a blessing. Um, You may even pray that it may be increased tenfold as a blessing, and what you're going to find is, if it's diabolical, that quality of the pain will change immediately. Uh, most of the time, it will disappear um, if it is of a diabolical uh, instigation. If it is not, if it's natural, then it will have no change uh, with regard to its severity.
0: So there you go. That's a very hard. It's it's a pretty easy rule. You can remember the prayer, um, and this comes up all the time. And I'm sure it's a question that you get often um, at, at, at not only your missions, but you probably get it. Uh, actually, uh, the priests probably get it as well. You know, there's a tendency. My friend uh, Ralph Sarchi has uh, had a little bit of dealing with this in the New York Police Department. And, you know, Ralph uh, is a New Yorker and so, says, you know, everybody wants to just blame me. The devil made me do it. That's a convenient cop-out excuse, Mike. That's not always the case. Yeah, are there demons there, but they're not always to blame. Would you, uh, could you talk a little bit about what, what things, what, what would we be looking for if we thought that the demons were to blame?
1: So, first of all, the demon is not going to be, you're not going to be able to shift culpability uh, to the demon. This is Flip Wilson theology, the devil made me do it. Um, <laughs> very simply, the diabolical is present to you because there is a psychological compatibility. Okay. So your, your friend, uh, Officer Sarchi, is exactly right, and, and there's uh, uh, you know a defense out there, uh, you can't, when we talk about entrapment or a sting operation by law enforcement, you can't entrap an honest man. You you can't incite an honest man to steal. However, someone who has uh, that in their nature may succumb to, to the scenario. So what the demon does is suggest things at an ordinary level first. This is called temptation. If you buy into the temptation to step over into sin, now you've damaged uh, your relationship with God. You've given down, you've laid down a lot of your weapons. And so every every single case of diabolical um, affliction, at some point there is uh, a psychological compatibility with the diabolical. That doesn't mean that, that you're in total agreement. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a weakness in character, a lack of virtue, uh, a predilection, or a concupiscence to vicious behavior, which opens you up to hearing his voice. And uh, once you act with that, uh, act in concert, um, then it's off to the races. Every single one of these encounters is, is reminiscent of what they encounter between Eve and the serpent in the garden. The serpent is essentially, sees her already engaged in the sin of thought, contemplating the fruit, contemplating the forbidden tree, and he actually just gives voice to her thought. And so he is the conspirator, not the instigator.
0: See, so that's that's interesting. That he is the hes the—he's a co-conspirator. He's not the instigator. Uh, the uh, Mister Kyle Clement is with us here on our Dude Maker Hotline. He is a case facilitator administrator for the Societas Matris Dolorosissima. Did I pronounce that correctly? Closely. Uh, last word, Dolorai Sisame. Sisame. Society founded by Father Chad Ripperger. Okay, I have uh, questions of, uh, for myself, uh, so I'm just going to ask myself a personal question uh, that I would have asked of you the other day. I have a family member that is currently practicing as a Wiccan. Believes that the God of the universe is the God of the universe is a she. And uh, I am very closely related. I'm just going to tell you, this is my mother. I visited her house. There were witches, uh, cartoon witches hanging from the ceilings. She thinks that this is all much ado about nothing. Uh, I told my very mentally uh, anguished niece who was staying there, I told her I won't mention her name, get out of this house. Get out of here right now. You're in mortal danger here because this is just a giant neon flashing sign in the underworld saying, uh, ringing the dinner bell. What danger am I in? My visit was in June. What danger is my niece in? What danger is my mother in?
1: So I think that's one of the things that we look at in these cases. And again, going back to predation, um, who is the soul in the most peril? Uh, It's your mother. Um, So that's the soul in the most peril. And she usually the soul in the most peril is the one least in perception of the peril uh so i think the counsel to the niece was very good um if you have the opportunity to offer her shelter or abode in your own home which is a catholic practicing home that might be um an opportunity but you're precisely right is the physical proximity to evil saint paul says watch and you know to avoid the near occasion of sin but physical proximity to evil um, is, uh, is a distance from God, and it's a difficulty even for the most ardent of Catholics um, to, to practice and to hold tight to their faith in such a concentration uh, of evil. And so um, one of the things that you're praying for is a prick of conscience. Now, I'm going to uh, assume that this woman has at least one of the
0: sacraments. She has um, all of them. She had all of them. Right. Baptized, I mean, confirmed, a whole, uh, a, a, a one sacramental marriage, received the Holy Eucharist, uh, Catholic school as a girl, all of them, Mr. Clement.
1: So that there's good news and bad news there. So the, the good news is she's going to be much more open to a prick of conscience because she has a properly formed conscience. Um, and so once um, you begin to pray, um, Lord, let let her see herself as you see her, And let me see her as you see her. Um, And so when you, when this is is the way that you begin to pray, you're trying to afford a prick of conscience. You're trying to afford a moment of clarity when she sees herself. This is drawing on the scriptural precedent of the prodigal son in the pig pen. He comes to his senses. Um, You could go on to say that he came to his senses because of the constant intercessory prayer of his father who's praying not that he return home, but simply that he have this moment of clarity so that he can make a, a good, unmolested, free-will decision to return to the Lord.
0: Now, another I have a question here from our listening audience. Um, what is the longest exorcism in which you've been involved? Why does it take so long, and what does that look like?
1: Excellent questions. And so, um, exorcism, again, back to Hollywood, uh, Hollywood has um, given the, the general public uh, an, an inaccurate perception of um, of exorcism in the same way um, that you know, for all his good intentions, John Wayne gave us a very um, inaccurate <laughs> depiction of Western life, ranching, uh, and life <laughs> in the in, in the West, um, and so. First of all, is, is to discard that and recognize that it's a very disciplined practice. There are lots of practices that have made their way into the Catholic Church in deliverance and exorcism from outside that were not consistent with Catholic norms. When Father Ripperger and I started to put together this protocol and procedures uh, about 15 years ago to handle three to 4,000 inquiries per year from around the world, we said, how was this done traditionally? How, how has the Catholic Church handled this for centuries? And so we came up with the four-phase protocol that does, uh, that prepares the person for the rigors of, of exorcism through spiritual exercises and various other things. And it, and it tends to be highly technical, but uh, done correctly, the exorcism sessions are limited to an hour and a half to two hours.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, this is about the psychological threshold. And physical threshold of the of the afflicted persons about all they need to try to to try to withstand the exorcist limits these things um, in the sessions and in the things that you're seeing where the diabolical are in a greater amount of control um, they haven't been weakened through the use of the protocol and so you're dealing with uh, you're dealing with the diabolical influence which is yet to be tempered and the will of the human which is yet to be. resolute. With the protocol, we have shortened the typical two-year period down to about six months.
0: And this is the Liber Cristo method, correct?
1: Right, L-I-B-E-R-C-H-R-I-S-T-O, which is linguistically vague for for the linguists in your audience and purposely so. Uh, We're trying to convey that all liberation comes through Christ, through him, with him, and in him, and nothing is done without
0: him. So we only have two minutes left, because I know you have to go, and uh, thank you for giving us the 30 minutes. Uh, I have heard, and it's uh, something that uh, I've been asked myself, we talked a little bit about contact objects earlier, earlier and I actually got this from Ralph Sarchi um, in one of our conversations, and Ralph said one of the the... the most surefire ways to bring one of these creatures into your life is to commit a sin that cries out to heaven for vengeance. True? He's precisely
1: right. Um, we, we do give this same consultation to law enforcement and others, uh, inter, even internationally, nationally and internationally, and he's exactly right. One of the four sins which cries out to heaven is you will certainly come to the attention of some very um, powerful fallen angels because that's the psychological compatibility they're looking for. If you're willing to do that, then they can work with you and through you um, to further the economy of damnation.
0: So that's uh that's the last question I have. I hope that uh, I can call you again and maybe we can uh, visit again uh, Mr. Clement. And thank you for being generous with, with your time, but I'm not going to let you leave until you tell tell the flower story. The flower. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we have to end this on a good on a on a happy note. <laughs> that's it. So we started
1: talking we started talking about marriage and uh, the uh, the husband and wife after Forty years of marriage, they find themselves in the uh, in the priest's office at the wife's insistence to talk about problems they're having in their marriage, mainly communication. And she says, "Father, he just doesn't know me anymore. He won't speak to me. He won't, he won't talk to me. We, he just uh, and he doesn't even know me." And so the priest is trying to take up for the the uh, the farmer husband, and he says, "I'm sure he knows you." He says, "John," he says, "What is her favorite flower?" And the husband scratches his head, thinks a minute, and says, "Self rising."
0: <laughs> it's just a, it's a great way to end a very serious talk. <laughs> you know, and and I uh, I got to tell you, Mister Clement, uh, I, I, uh, I I laughed heartily, but then I I had the thought after you told the joke, I'm uh, even in among exorcists, and I've seen Father Rippinger laugh, practicing the faith. There's still joy. You can't take the. There, there's joy in being a Catholic. There's joy in being in saying, "God, take me. I want you to. I want I, You know, I, I seek. I'm seeking first. I'm trying, Lord. I'm seeking first the kingdom of God." And after you give this this this, this two hour long dissertation, you're talking about all this evil. You tell the flower joke, and I went, "That guy's a Catholic." <laughs> <laughs>
1: It is, it is true. It is all joy, um, because at the end of the day, these are creatures, and they are not Creator. And our relationship is primarily with the the Creator. And this is the most functional theology that you, you will ever be around. The demon doesn't engage in speculative theology. He doesn't engage in all of these things. He will either yield or he will not yield, and um, what's true is true.
0: So, uh, uh, can folks find Liber Cristo method on uh, the uh, the internet?
1: Yes, and so thank you for that opportunity. So, two websites: www. and Monte m o n t e c h r i s t o. And there's a lot of free resources there. There's YouTube talks. There's downloadable PDFs. There's all, all kinds of things there that, that cost nothing. And then there are some seminars and retreats and other things which are at a cost. But Father is uh, is very adamant about trying to get as much of this uh, information out there in the hands of the lay faithful as we can.
0: Well, we will help facilitate that in any way that we possibly can, and uh, I think that uh, this will warm your heart, uh, Mr. Clement, as you uh, as you exit our telephone here. That the segment that comes up next here every fr- Friday on the Mike Church Show is called Free Farm Friday, and it's all about regenerative farming and man's relationship of living with the land that God blessed us with, so uh, you said you were a seventh uh, fifth generation rancher seventh generation seven herd. we raised yeah we raised cattle
1: and sheep and some poultry uh we are uh, we are behind the gate sustainable, which means uh we can shut the gate and live right there <laughs> and so that uh This movement is very, very important to the preservation of the integrity of humanity and our faith. And so I'm glad to hear that you all are doing that. Uh, You're in one of the most beautiful parts of the world to do that. Um, The abundance of God's bounty in South Louisiana is amazing.
0: Well, uh, I'd like to invite you back sometime, and we'll talk about farming a little bit. How about that? Sounds good. All right, Mr. Clement, thank you so much. God bless you and your work, and thanks for coming and visiting us at uh, at Our Lady of Mount Carmel and here on the North Shore across uh, across the waters from New Orleans.
1: You're most welcome. I look forward to being with you and your listeners again.